Today's podcast is brought to you by Premium. With Premium, you always have a specialist in your corner to give you insights to those tough patient cases. It's free, and you get patient-specific answers fast. Check out their website using the special fellow on-call link at tfoc.primum.co. Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, the Hemong Podcast. We're coming at you from Rural University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. I'm Dan. And in today's episode, we continue on that conversation we started last week about the involvement of transplant in the treatment of our patients with multiple myeloma, but this time shifting our focus just a little bit to right after transplant or that maintenance setting. Really excited to get into this one. The maintenance phase in myeloma confused me for a long time. I know I've been saying that a lot. Everything in myeloma confused me, but it's really interesting to go through the data, which we'll take you through today in a very easy, understandable way and outline more details in our show notes like we always do. Yeah, hopefully patients spend kind of their longest period in in this maintenance phase. So a super important topic. Absolutely. All right, guys. Well, then without further ado, let's go ahead and roll that show. I think last week Vivek told us that he finished Survivor, and so everyone now knows that means he's obviously started another TV show. So just, I, I see it on your face. Just lay it out there. What are you watching? This time, no TV show. I've got, I've got a better story for everyone here. So this past weekend, there was no playoff game. So what I did with my wife and a couple of our friends, we did an escape room thing. Those things are awesome. It's like solving a bunch of puzzles and clues and stuff like that. I mean, highly recommend Escape rooms are the best. The little game host people are are cool. I really, really, really had a great time. Yeah, I've never done one. People have told me that uh, that I would enjoy them. I'll have to I'll have to check it out. Dan, you would def you would love that, Dan. I mean, it's like problem solving, and you know, I don't know. It's it's a lot of fun. That I sweet. I propose that as our next team builder. If you guys are up for it, oh, we're oh yeah, totally doing this one hundred percent. Yeah, that'd be awesome. No episode next week. That sounds great. And if any escape room owners or workers want to give us some <laughs> free passes to come to an escape room, uh, let us know. We got to get that sponsorship. That's right. We'll take sponsorship in the in the form of free admission as well. That counts. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> So guys, I thought we had a really fantastic discussion last week on the role of transplant in the treatment of patients with myeloma. And, you know, ultimately, I think what we came down to is the idea of trying to give patients transplants whenever feasible is simply to try to decrease the burden of disease and all of the things that come with having disease, including trips to the doctor, infusions, toxicities related to drugs, and then of course, doing our best to maintain organ function. As we know, myeloma is a systemic disease. It causes all sorts of problems. So just trying to ward off a lot of those things. And so, you know, this week we're shifting our focus a little bit more now towards the maintenance phase. So what would come after we give our patients transplants? And with the goal here, at least my understanding is to maintain that decrease in their their myeloma burden as best as we can. So I just want to remind all of us about the case that we started with last week, 
just to kind of use to guide our discussion moving forward. So our listeners and and Vivek and Dan, you guys will recall that we had a 55-year-old female that was previously healthy that had newly diagnosed standard risk IgG kappa multiple myeloma. And we've been saying this over and over, but just to reiterate once again, she had no uh, translocation 414, translocation 1416, a deletion 17P, or amplification of 1Q. And then she also did not have extramedullary plasma cytomas or any circulating plasma cells. And so, as I said, she's our standard risk patient. Now, let's assume she got that high-dose melphalan or MEL200, as we've said before. And then after that, she got her autologous stem cell transplant. After recovery from her transplant, she's found to be in a complete remission. And so then she is started on Revlimid maintenance. And so here we are, guys. Why Revlimid? Where did this come from? Are there other options? Let's just get right into this. Yeah, yeah. This is a great, great point that you're making here that we're trying to maintain the response as best as we can. And again, we hope that we functionally cure a subset of patients, but we know that myeloma at this time is a chronic disease and Revlimid maintenance for all is key. So if there's one thing that you remember, remember Revlimid maintenance for all and we'll get to the reason why. And then we'll talk about how high risk the treatment algorithm changes. So I'm going to talk us through the big meta-analysis that led to Revlimid maintenance post-transplant. This was a combination of three randomized control trials from three different cooperative groups. One was the CalGB group in the U.S., one was another Italian cooperative group, and the other one was that IFM French cooperative group. So there's three randomized control trials that basically said, is Revlimid maintenance post-transplant superior to placebo? That do we need this pill therapy that we're kind of taking indefinitely, right, after transplant? And what we found in each individual trial is that there was a progression-free survival benefit, but only one of the trials, that United States trials, showed an overall survival benefit. And the key thing there was those trials were powered for PFS and not OS. So then we did this meta-analysis, combining all three, increasing our sample size and power to detect an overall survival difference. And we found the seven-year overall survival was improved by over 10%. It was 62% in the Revlimid maintenance arm versus 50% in the placebo arm at seven years. And that bottom line made it the standard of care to use Revlimid maintenance post-transplant. Remember that these IMID drugs are not benign drugs. They, They do come with pretty significant risks. And one of the risks that we saw in these studies was an increased risk of a second primary hematologic malignancy or a solid tumor malignancy patients in the Revlimid group. So uh, there was about a 6% rate of hematologic malignancy in the Revlimid group versus 3% in the placebo group. And for solid tumors, we saw about 7% rate of new solid tumors in the Revlimid group versus 4% the placebo group. So, you know, we approach these drugs with caution, of course, but like, like Vivek said, they show pretty good overall survival benefit at seven years. And, and one of the other big toxicities to always remember is that risk of thrombosis with these drugs. And that's why we do the thromboprophylaxis. And that's a shout back to our pharmacology episode that we had earlier. Absolutely. And I would suspect that for a patient that's high risk, something like maintenance therapy is even more important. I mean, the name gives it away, high risk. So I suspect that they're high risk for for relapse as well. So how do we maintain these patients uh, and try to 
ward off that that likelihood of the disease coming back. One important thing to keep in mind is that the only high quality, like you know, randomized clinical trial level evidence that we have is for the use of single agent Revlimid after transplant in you know in the general myeloma population. But we do know in general that high risk patients have a median progression-free survival, median PFS of only two years. So these high-risk patients, we can get them into remission, but they generally don't stay there. And we don't have ideal evidence for this population just because, fortunately, these patients are a pretty small subset of the overall enrolled population, though these studies just aren't powered to, to look for those benefits in this population. But we do have data to support dual maintenance, so the idea of adding a proteasome inhibitor to IMID in these patients. And that's a strategy that I think warrants further study and and hopefully will provide some benefit for this group that's so tough to treat. And guys, I just wanted to make one point of clarification for my better understanding. Once again, when we are talking about patients high risk that we would want to consider doing this sort of dual therapy approach for, these are those patients with those high-risk characteristics that I was naming that thankfully our patient does not have, correct? It is not the same as those prognostic criteria that we had alluded to in a previous episode? Yeah, I think that's that's generally true. When you look at some of these studies, and we haven't really talked about it a lot in our characterization, a very high LDH, we're talking twice the upper limit of normal, can also be included in that group. It's important when you look at myeloma studies that it is pretty heterogeneous and the, the traits that we gave you are most commonly accepted. And often if you're having something like that high of an LDH, you do have another feature like one of these high-risk cytogenetics that we talked about or circulating plasma cells or one of these extramedullary plasma cytomas. So in general, high-risk patient, we want to be reaching for maybe like a dual proteasome inhibitor and an IMID just to try to decrease that likelihood of recurrence of disease. Yeah, that's exactly right. And for the longest time, I wondered, why is this an approach? And I actually remembered that a myeloma attending in my second year fellowship said, yeah, we should consider dual maintenance. And in my head, I'm like, I've never heard of dual maintenance, and I probably should know why this is. So first of all, I want to take you through a brief walk down memory lane. And way back in an early trial, and this was done by another cooperative group, doesn't matter what the trial name is. It was Hovon 65, but who cares? The bottom line is an older study that was looking at when we used cytotoxic chemotherapy for induction. We said, well, what about Velcade? Let's swap out one of those cytotoxic drugs with Velcade. So this is one of the trials that we did in the early to mid 2000s. And in that trial, patients either got thalidomide maintenance or Velcade maintenance. And that trial showed that for a high-risk cytogenetics, the high-risk population, those who got thalidomide maintenance had very poor outcomes and very poor overall survival, and those who got Velcade maintenance actually had a better overall survival. And that is actually why in the NCCN you'll see single-agent Velcade as an option for high-risk patients was based on this really old data. But that was our first insight into the fact that, hey, thalidomide maybe isn't the best drug to use in maintenance. And we had already known that historically. We used things like interferon way back in the day for maintenance. Then we went to thalidomide and it had a lot of toxicities and wasn't that effective. And then here in this old trial, we said, wow, Velcade worked, especially for high-risk patients. And then, you know, eventually we got to Revlimid, but that's where the initial idea of using Velcade for high-risk came from. 
So I think what's really interesting about this whole paradigm, right, is that a lot of our data about what to use, when to use it, how long to use it for, especially now, in, for instance, in this data that Vivek just presented about the use of Velcade is older. And anyone that's ever seen a myeloma presentation, the speakers often show how much explosion there has been in, in the treatments of multiple myeloma in the last five to 10 years. If we have so many good options for salvage therapy in this day and age compared to even 20 years ago, is it really that big of a deal if a person has an early relapse with the understanding that, you know, we have second line agents now that are very effective and can we spare these patients, maybe the toxicities of, of long-term maintenance by keeping them off of treatment for a little while and watching? The thing to remember is that most of the time what we have is difficulty keeping somebody in remission. We can generally get somebody there. Primary refractory disease is, is pretty uncommon, fortunately, but it just keeping keeping that response is the hard thing. And the reason why we sort of fixate on early relapse is we think of that as the disease telling us something about its biology. These patients are high risk because they had some persistent low level of disease that was able to push through whatever our maintenance strategy was. And we think of that as being a harbinger of, of future clonal evolution and just longstanding disease that's just tough to keep down. And also keep in mind that, generally speaking, each subsequent progression-free survival interval is going to be shorter. And that ultimately translates to poor overall survival, we think, given the increased amount of clonal evolution and increasingly resistant clones that come out of that process. Dan, that's super important. And that really leads us to the idea that, well, this, we had, okay, maybe Velcade works. Then we had this meta-analysis that we talked about at the beginning of this episode, single agent Revlimid. But still, patients with these single agents had still poor PFS and overall survival and high risks. Then we said, well, what if we did something like a triplet in maintenance? Or what if we did something like a doublet in maintenance? And there's two key trials that fellows should know about. The first one is actually just a single institution experience from Emory. And what they did was they looked at a cohort of high-risk patients and they treated them homogeneously. In this group, they gave everybody VRD maintenance after transplant indefinitely and said, how do these patients do? And one of the fascinating things is patients with high-risk cytogenetics who got RVD maintenance after transplant had a median progression-free survival of a little over three years. It was 40 months, so over three years. So that's a year more progression-free survival than with single-agent Revlimid. And the overall survival in those patients was 78 months. So we're talking over six years of overall survival, and that's a significant improvement. So that's one of the thoughts as well. A triplet with RVD worked in the single center. And another key thing to know about that that I want to make very clear is that even though in that Emory experience they got triplet RVD, in practice, we think about a doublet strategy without the steroid to spare patients the toxicity of long-term steroid use. So in the NCCN guidelines, that's why you'll see something like a Velcade plus Revlimid maintenance. The other thing that you'll see is something like a KR maintenance, which is that second-generation proteasome inhibitor, carfilzomib plus Revlimid maintenance for high risk, and that was because of the Forte trial. Yeah, so remember last time we had talked about KRD as a potential alternate induction regimen that we could use for high-risk patients based on this trial? 
It's a phase two trial that looked at three different triplets, three different induction triplets, using this second generation proteasome inhibitor called carfilzomib. They combined it with cyclophosphamide for KCYD, four cycles, then auto. Compared that to KRD, or carfilzomib, revlimid, and dexamethasone for four cycles, then auto. Or just KRD for four cycles, with a second four cycles of KRD as consolidation, so taking out the transplant component. After that, the groups were then randomized to two different maintenance strategies, revlimid alone or revlimid with carfilzomib. So the first randomization, they designed that such that it would be powered to look for VGPR as a response prior to maintenance. And the second randomization, so when they were randomizing to the maintenance strategies, was powered to look for improved PFS. And for this episode, let's just focus on the maintenance portion. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So the key thing with this trial, again, is that we were looking at let's finally do a randomization to see is KR better than R. At this point, nobody had really looked at that. Maybe that's better for all patients, for all we know. And that's why this trial was designed that way, particularly for the high-risk subgroup. What we found was that KR versus R maintenance had an improved three-year progression-free survival at 75% in the KR group, which is 10% higher. So a 10% improvement in three-year progression-free survival with doublet versus single maintenance. And that makes sense. If you're looking at the whole population, if you're giving them more myeloma-directed therapy, I'm not surprised that PFS is better. Overall survival is going to be a much, much more important endpoint because, yes, we're exposing these patients to more toxicity. Carfilzomib is still an infusion. So we need to power our future trials looking at things like overall survival or progression-free survival time point number two, quality of life, things that we talked about in the last episode. But at least here, we knew that this doublet had efficacy. The big thing was, if you looked at the high-risk subgroup, we had an astounding three-year progression-free survival at over 70%. Remember that historically, two-year progression-free survival in high-risk is like 50%. And now we're getting over about 70% in this high-risk group. So that really led us to think, hey, doublet maintenance is really a good strategy to go with in these high-risk patients. The data is not perfect. Like I said, we are not powering for overall survival. That analysis where I mentioned the 70% number, it's a little bit complicated because that include gain 1Q patients, and we've been talking about amplification 1Q, which is greater than four copies, so slightly different. And if you take the gain 1Qs out, it's not quite as impressive, but it's still a very good benefit. And so that's why we really think in high-risk patients, doublet maintenance, whether you're using KR or VR, Velcade Revlimid or Carfilzomib Revlimid is the way to go. And in this trial, those who got this KRD induction They had this really good progression-free survival. So that's why we told you KRD induction followed by KR maintenance is a reasonable strategy for high risk. Okay, interesting. And and to build off of another conversation that we had previously, I believe we were talking a little bit about the role of measuring MRD or minimal residual disease or measurable residual disease in multiple myeloma. And so has MRD assessment ever been done in any of these transplant trials? And specifically, 
And I can't remember the exact context of the conversation, but I remember we talked about MRD as being, one of the trials looked at MRD as a single time point. And we explained that MRD is kind of more so on a continuum, right? That a single time point of having no more residual disease may not actually be that helpful, uh, but perhaps monitoring this over time may be a better way to assess how well someone's myeloma is under control. So all this to say, has that ever been studied in, in trials similar to what we just discussed? Yeah, they did actually look at MRD in the Forte trial. They saw that the rates of achieving MRD negativity were comparable in the uh, KRD plus auto versus the KRD followed by more KRD as consolidation. There is about a 5% difference favoring that auto transplant arm. But when you, when they looked at MRD at one year, so sustained MRD, who was able to hold on to that MRD negativity, there was a much larger difference. So the auto transplant group saw about 47% continued MRD negativity at one year compared with the KRD consolidation group that only saw about 35% MRD negativity at that same time point. So it, it went from a you know, pretty similar upfront to a much larger 12% difference, uh, absolute difference, when, when you looked at the, the one-year time point. And this also translated into an improved progression-free survival. So to me, this, this really highlights that the newer combination, this KRD combination, it doesn't necessarily negate the need for transplant, but it's, a, it's an exciting strategy for high-risk patients in particular. Uncertain of next steps given a patient's other medical conditions? Unclear how to handle a patient's most recent recurrence? A pharmacology question gnawing at your brain? Premum has you covered. With Premum, you can connect to leading oncology specialists across solid and liquid tumors to find answers to your patient-specific questions. Expect responses back within a day, saving you time. Make better and more confident treatment decisions thanks to the insights you receive on Premium. Premium's HIPAA-compliant platform is free to use, so sign up and give it a try today. Learn more about Premium by visiting www.tfoc.premium.co. That's tfoc.premium.co. Just to build off of this even more, and, and I'm just trying to bring back all the little bits of the conversations we've had on previous episodes, because I, I feel like everything is slowly coming full circle and I'm just getting kind of amped. So when we talked to Catherine Maples, who was one of our pharmacist colleagues from, from Emory, she actually mentioned that at their institution, for instance, they're not even necessarily doing triple therapy for their standard risk patients. They're going right ahead and adding that daratumumab to their regimen. So they're actually doing quad therapy up front. And I'm getting the hint that essentially when people are opting for a maintenance therapy strategy, they're simply simplifying the regimen that the patient already got and then picking one or in some cases two of those agents to keep people on long term. So with the use of DARA now also being added to triplet therapy, any information about how that's fitting into our maintenance strategies? Are we including that too long-term? Really great question. And again, as we've said a lot, Myloba, the short answer is we really don't know. And we have some inkling on some ideas on what to do, but really we don't have good evidence on what to do in this setting. So I'll walk us through that. So 
Remember, listeners, that we talked about DARA VTD in Europe, and we talked about DARA VRD in the United States. The European trial was DARA VTD versus VTD. Remember, they didn't use Revlimid because of cost effectiveness that we talked about prior. And in America, we use VRD, so we use DARA VRD. So if we look at the DARA VTD trial, in that trial, patients were either randomized to daratumumab maintenance or placebo. So that means even if a patient didn't get DARA in the upfront induction setting, they were just in that triplet VTD group, they were randomized still to where they could have gotten daratumumab in the maintenance setting post-transplant. So those patients went on to transplant in that trial. That was a transplant trial. And what we found was that daratumumab improved progression-free survival over placebo in the whole population. I want to note that we should have had all of these patients at least on Revlimid maintenance, right? That would have been ideal. We talked about the meta-analysis. At the time that this trial was designed, in the trial, when you read it, they said, well, that data wasn't out yet, so that's why they chose placebo. Still, it would have been ideal for us to have compared something like daratumumab versus Revlimid, for example. But here we are. We had daratumumab versus placebo. Not surprisingly, something is better than nothing, and it improved progression-free survival. But the interesting thing was, if the patients got dara in induction, that quadruplet induction, daratumumab maintenance actually didn't change their progression-free survival. And that's fascinating. So DARA maintenance didn't improve anything over placebo if they got a quadruplet in the upfront setting. So that really said, well, do we need DARA maintenance? That's still a question mark. And in that DARA VRD trial in the United States, also called the Griffin trial, all patients got DARA Revlimid maintenance. So we don't know. It doesn't help us answer the question. Patients got DARA and Revlimid so we don't know. Do you need DARA and the Revlimid, or do you just use Revlimid alone? And of course, because we have to try DARA with everything, there was a trial for DARA combined with KRD. That was the master trial. And this was a, a risk-adapted approach uh, to maintenance. So they, they looked at MRD negativity to try and help them figure out how to, how to triage people. So it started out with everybody in the trial got DARA plus KRD, up front, followed by autotransplant. And then after the autotransplant, they had MRD measured at two different time points. And if they weren't able to show that they had sustained MRD negativity, then they got more DARA KRD as consolidation. Those who did show that they had sustained MRD negativity, they went on to an observation branch of the trial with no, no maintenance therapy. And ultimately, the results ended up showing that for standard risk patients, it, it might be reasonable to undergo a risk-adapted approach to see who is going to need additional consolidation therapy, in this case, after an autotransplant versus who could just be observed. They found that there was a relatively low recurrence of, of MRD, of a uh, transition from MRD negative to positive in the, at the one-year time point in the observation wing of that. So if they were able to show they had sustained MRD up front after the transplant, they generally continued that trend. Yeah, and that that's really an important thing is that these patients were able to go live their lives off maintenance therapy. The idea was if you have sustained MRD negativity at two time points, 
let's just stop everything. And that really also makes us wonder, well, if those patients did well, maybe that's why in that Cassiopeia trial, the DARA VTD, the DARA didn't really improve anything if you got it up front, because maybe the patient's already in that MRD state. Super interesting. So essentially what I'm hearing is that it's unclear if DARA is actually required for maintenance if a quadruplet is used in the induction setting. So suggesting that maybe patients get all the benefit that they're going to get from the DARA up front. But, but certainly we don't have any definitive data to say that. We're kind of extrapolating from what we know. And perhaps, and we also kind of alluded to this last time, I think there needs to be, and I suspect there is going to be, more of a risk-adapted approach to how we care for our patients with myeloma in the future, you know, as they as they had done in, in the master trial. So essentially treating our patients more or less the same, looking at their MRD status and then deciding what the next steps are, instead of using kind of this blanket approach to everybody with, you know, high risk features or standard risk features, et cetera. And I, I think that's, that's awesome. And, you know, I, I'm imagining that that same graphic that I'm talking about with the explosion in myeloma drugs continuing to grow from here, but more so maybe it's going to start branching into like different directions, just as people start investigating how we use all these different therapies and different combinations, perhaps allowing us to better stratify our patients so that we can take care of them as best as possible. That was, that was really well said, Ronak. And one thing I just want to do just to summarize the high yield points that we talked about today, we had a meta-analysis that showed Revlimid maintenance indefinitely post-transplant for all improves overall survival. In the high-risk patients, we have some data suggesting that doublet maintenance with a PI and IMID, whether that's Velcade, Revlimid, based on that single institution Emory experience, or carfilzomib plus Revlimid based on the Forte trial are very good options. And lastly, if you got daratumumab as part of your induction regimen, then went on to transplant, so had one of those quadruplet regimens, we don't know if you need to continue daratumumab in maintenance, but currently, if you got dara-RVD, dara-R maintenance is what was used in the trial. If you got DARA VTD, you don't need DARA in the maintenance setting. Awesome, guys. Well, I think that rounds out another fantastic discussion on the fellow on call. So until next time, we'll see you all later. See you later. Peace. Peace.